Hello and welcome to the Tez International Podcast with me, Dan Worth. In this episode, we chat with Jonathan Warner, the headmaster of the British School of Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. In the episode, we discuss how he came to work in such a unique part of the world and the lifestyle that comes with it, why he's made community integration a big focus since taking over and how he went about achieving this, the importance of including students on this journey by opening their eyes to the wider world around them and the powerful impact this can have, and the importance of cultivating good working relationships with local government staff. All that and lots more on the latest TES International Podcast. Jonathan, hi there. Welcome to the TES International Podcast. You're joining us from Mongolia, which I think always has that fresh honour of sort of, you know, the back and beyond. But obviously it's not really, is it? Or tell us a bit more, set the scene, you know, where are you now? Um, what's it like in that part of the world? How did you come to be the headmaster of this school? Um, I think the, the the most important feature of Mongolia is probably the freedom uh, you find here. It's it's not the back and beyond. It may be slightly off the beaten track, but I wouldn't be that cruel about it. That, that's the better phrase, yes. I'm, I'm here in Ulaanbaatar as the capital city and where half the population of the country lives. But this is the country with the lowest population density on earth. Wow. So what you do find is when you're outside this city, the ability to just go for miles, whether you're on a horse or dog sled or whatever it might be, just to enjoy immense freedom and never pass a path or a road or a gate at all. So it's it's a very special location. I've um, I've lived in lots of different places, but I've never had the freedom that this place provides. Uh, what brought me here? Um, a real passion for Central Asia. Um, I used to work in Kazakhstan um, with Halebury over ten years ago now, and. Um, when the opportunity arose, I was really keen to come back to Central Asia because it's a culture and it's a landscape and even a climate. I mean, it'll be for everyone, but something I really like. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a fantastic description. That, that sense of freedom you describe, it does sound quite quite beguiling. Um, I mean, can I ask, you obviously sort of said that you know, Central Asia is a passion for you, but, but this school in particular, where did you start working here then? And, and you know, how long have you been in, in, in post? Well, I, I've been in post close to three years. And... I arrived in 2019, just before everything got particularly interesting. Um, it, in fact, um, it was oh, late January. I was just about to walk into a Mongolian lesson. I got the text message from the Ministry of Education saying we'd be closed for approximately six weeks, uh, 47 weeks of term time later. Uh, now everything is back open. But no, just in time to get my feet under the table before we had to close. And uh, I've been here all the way through the pandemic period. That's fantastic. And, and your, your sort of early career, again, that's sort of before, have you always predominantly worked in international education or did you have a spell in the UK first? And, you know, again, I think, I think a lot of people will be very interested to know, how do you end up, you know, what's the career tra- trajectory to end up where you are now? <laughs> um, I spent uh, 15 years in the UK as a teacher, uh, predominantly in the independent sector, um, usually boarding schools, um, which I love. I think boarding brings a really special character to a school. Uh, but what brought me out to, to schools like this? Um, it's I think you can have more of an impact on a school. And sometimes if if the avenues are open to you and the local uh, organizations are open to it, um, more of a you know a positive uh, impact to the culture and the community than you can almost have in a lifetime in the UK. Within about five years, you can do some really good things. So it was a sense that, you know, much as I love the, um, the UK independent sector, um, things do move rather slowly. And 
Schools like this, that's definitely never the case. Things move fast. Things are dynamic. It's interesting. Um, there's all sorts of opportunities for growth and development. And that's what I love. I do like projects. And this is certainly a very interesting project. Well, that's great. And then obviously talking about projects sort of leads us nicely onto what we're going to focus on now, which is around sort of community integration and some of the work you've done there. I sort of caught the very tail end of a, of a, of a talk you gave at the Cobus conference recently, and it, it, I just missed it because I was trying to get between so many sessions and it sounded really interesting though. That's why we sort of made contact. And so again, explain, explain, explain a bit of the context of that. Obviously, it's always something you've obviously focused on at this school. Was that something you always looked at in different schools? Or was this school you could sense there was a bit of a, they weren't involved in the community the way they could be, the way they should be, but that was causing a bit of a disconnect. Again, what, what was the sort of um, catalyst for all this? Um, that's a very interesting question, Dan, because to be fair, it's a bit of both. Um, it, it is something I think is critically important for an international school. I think a good international school should be a hub for the community and communities. It should bring different communities together. And Sometimes we've got an opportunity through simple things like being the host for the local choir practice or something of that nature to bring all sorts of people together. And within that, friendships go, relationships develop. And I think that's a really important thing for a school to do. But particularly in UB, I think it's fair to say that the schools here have operated often as the, the phrase I like to use is the old silos of privilege. The they're very isolated and there aren't many international schools in Olambato and we don't have an enormous expatriate community, particularly at the moment following the pandemic. But what we do have is a disconnect between pretty privileged families and children and the, the life as it's lived in the rest of the city and outside in that massive countryside I talked about earlier. Um, where things are very, very different. And I feel here it was particularly important to make a strong and concerted effort to integrate us into the community so we could break down some of those barriers. And also with a real hope that if some of our students go on to leadership opportunities, whether in companies or indeed the country, that they come at their roles in the future with a sense of stewardship and a desire to do good in this country. I'm very proud of the fact that many of our graduates, although the vast majority go um, to international universities around the world, certainly when they leave us, they all tell us how they want to come back and they want to use the skills they've learned to the betterment of this country. The vast majority of our children are Mongolian, and I believe that's quite right. They should be invested in their country and want to help its development in the future. So I think it was critically important here um, there was a disconnect. I think we've addressed it well. And it's about building trust. Um, if there's not a sense of understanding and cooperation, then you're just a bunch of foreigners who are here for a short time, not really doing, making an impact or doing something worthwhile for the community. And I think most of us, when we leave the UK and are looking at posts like this, we do hope that there's some opportunity for us to leave the place better than we arrived. And I hope we can. I've always said it's not our job to tell people what to do. Um, but if someone in the local community asks us to be involved and to support and to assist, I'm delighted. And that's what we've tried to do all the way. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is, again, is very sort of compelling insights. And I, and I recently, a while ago, wrote a piece about community integration, which touched on similar things. And I think you're absolutely right. People who go abroad, they definitely 
want to take that with them. It's not just a sort of a two year, for a lot of people, it's not just that two year thing. It's, it's, I want to have an impact on the school, on the wider community. Mm. So when you, so if we go back to the start, then when you arrived and you, and you sort of sensed that, or you saw it, or was aware, you were aware that this is something that needs a bit of work. It's not as good as it could be. We need to integrate more. We need to be involved with the community more. How did you then actually do that? Did it start in the school? Did you reach out to local people in, like, in the government? Like, how did you sort of think, right, how can I make the most immediate? How do we get this started to start improving things? The first element was when I first got an opportunity to see how life was lived in the Gur districts in UB, which for those people who aren't familiar with the term, um, the Russian word for a Gur is yurt, uh, but you wouldn't really call it um, a yurt here. It's very firmly a Gur in Mongolia. Um, and a lot of, about a third of the population of this city live in tents um, on the edge of the city and conditions there are tough. Some of the, the poorest members of society live uh, directly on the rubbish tips on the edge of this city and make a living by upcycling and, and scavenging what they can from the rubbish tips. Now, that is a very marginal existence indeed. And um, going over there, um, there'd already been a project started in the school by just gathering waste paper. And rather than sending it to recycling companies, which we found quite hard to connect with, we bought a couple of small machines and started compressing the paper into little briquettes to provide us fuel because they really struggle finding things to light their fires and everything needs to be done through um, fuel of that nature. So this, we just compress the stuff, get it over to the districts, pass them out, utilizing a couple of the NGOs and contacts that we've made out in that direction so people knew what we were giving them. And it started to sort of move from there the thing I really wanted to do was encourage our older children to get out to that part of the city to really see what life was like there. Because a great many of our kids, even though they're UB born and bred, have never been to those areas. Uh, they don't know what it's like to have eight people living in a, a tent, which is fundamentally smaller than this office I'm in. And particularly when the pandemic hit, um, the issues that were facing people who were trying to socially distance, yet everyone in the whole area has to go to one standpipe for their water. Well, it was impossible. So trying to do something to support those communities, that's where it started. Um, so that was our, our very first effort. Our second one, though, was um, as the pandemic gathered pace, large numbers of government workers were effectively laid off and couldn't be paid, but volunteered to support the State Emergency Committee to try and actually um, do their bit to control the rising and rapid spread of the disease. So at that stage, we knew these people were living on nothing and there were stories of considerable hardship amongst the volunteers. So it was a very proud moment. Um, I popped into um, our staff meeting and simply said to everyone, look, I'd really like to make a donation to these people. I'd like this to be effectively a day's salary from every single one of us in the school but it has to be your choice. I'm not going to give any, anyone's money away unless you agree. And not a single voice of dissent from the entire community, Mongolian expatriate, didn't matter where anyone was from, everyone agreed this was necessary. I think that was quite a proud moment because it, it really, it, it gelled the team very early on. And the fact that there was an issue with adversity and we wanted to do something about it. And we did. And not a single person had a question other than, are you sure this is going to the right place? Which was a very sensible question of the right one to ask. 
but we were. Um, we donated that to the State Emergency Committee, who were absolutely bowled over with the fact that, again, this international organization had even recognized this was an issue. So it started to build that, um, you know, growing avenue of trust with some of the official organizations. Um, and I think it was the first chink in the silo um, that we weren't actually just here to teach the rich kids, but actually far more. We were here to actually be, a, a, you know, a supportive partner within the community of UB. There's some great examples, and I suppose quite a lot of questions come from that. One I sort of wanted to ask, the first one that struck me was, you talked about that some of the pupils have never been to these parts of their city, which is sort of quite remarkable. But then you can also imagine, yes, if they grew up in that sort of slightly sheltered world or whatever, you know, in a silo, they may That's not. But right. what, what was that experience like for them? Were you, were you there when they went out, or did you hear them come back and sort of say, actually, yeah, that was a really... You know, please, or it was quite eye opening, or whatever. You know that. Presumably, that's a big sort of hurdle to get over, and then it suddenly make, makes them realise, yeah, there's a world out beyond the school, and my little bubble that we need to get involved in. I think some of the children would describe it as transformative. Um, it, it really was. It's one of those things where uh, you know several of them were in almost distressed, floods of tears coming about. This is the, the phrase I didn't know people lived like that, but then after the initial shock faded, what it really did was fire up, particularly our six formers, about what they were going to do about it, both now and in the future. And I've had lots of conversations with uh, prefects, all sorts of, of, of the older kids, exam classes, who are, are really galvanized by this experience and think, look, we've got to do something about this. This isn't right. We shouldn't have this disparity within the country, which is extreme. Um, it is absolutely huge. Um, but that's exactly what we wanted. If we don't let them walk those roads and pathways around the girls, and I, I mean, it's a visceral experience. You've got to smell what it's like out there and go, wow, this is how their countrymen live. How can they change society to make sure this isn't perpetuated in the future when it's their turn? And I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that they that they're going to take this away with them. And we should continue doing it. It's not a flash in the pan. Um, we keep volunteering, particularly in some of the little kindergartens and um, uh, areas over there where the, ch the children can assist and help and also try to raise money and funds. But it's particularly that, that the you know, um, physical experience of being there and walking through the, uh, the community and starting to become recognised and part of that community so you're not a stranger. And then they, 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 we, what you're simply creating is that human contact, which I think in the future is going to make a very big difference. Um, so I hope so. So yes, for the vast majority, the, really the, the, you know, the amount they were moved was quite something. It was quite a special moment. I, I actually count that as one of the most, you know, momentous moments of my career, seeing really? the, wow. just the look on their face. Yes, I do. Um, because we did a good job that day. We changed the way they thought, and isn't that learning? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that sounds like we, we, you have that with the pupils and with the staff. You know, obviously in that situation, the pandemic and the donation and the sort of galvanising of a sense of you know we are part of this. We cannot just live, keep going as if we're not around this. It that sounds like a good way of having both you know camps together um, to then go forward with what you wanted to do, which is to build on that and build that community integration. So, what did you do subsequently when you had that sort of sense of right? There's momentum here. People are on board with this. 
what have you done subsequently just to maintain that you are new sort of avenues of engagement of you know helping the community or getting people in are people coming into the school for, for things as well maybe all, all sorts of things. I mean, one of our, our biggest events uh, more recently has been uh, really trying to pursue quite targeted teacher training. Um, one of the issues uh, that Mongolia faces, for example, in terms of uh, you know holding back future development is that standards of English um, amongst their English teachers are actually quite low. I mean, in EAL terms, we're talking A2 to B1 is fairly average. And what we want to do and what we've been invited to do by the ministry is to get involved with that training. We have our pilot study going on right now with our first nine students who are, are spending eight hours a week at school, seeing practice, working with our teachers, having some intensive focus on um, EAL pedagogical work on a Saturday and really trying to develop their skills to help them do their jobs as best they can. So we're part of that now. If this goes well, and um, certainly the, the ministry have been tremendously receptive to this, um, we hope that we'll be able to extend the course to about a three-month-long project. Um, and the idea is to have cohorts of 20 staff focusing on English, but also maths and natural sciences over potentially two to three years to really try and upgrade the standards of teaching in English, which is a major strategy um, for uh, not just private schools, not at all, but all of the schools in, across the country. Um, and with that, we can really start, I think, to bring the skills we have and share. And this isn't just one way. This should be both ways. What can we learn from the teachers who work here, what, what their experiences are? So for my staff who are involved in this, they've already, it's only just been the last couple of days. We haven't even got a week through the program yet. But they've got a great deal out of it, and they're all reporting how much they're enjoying the experience and finding it enriching. Um, I very much hope this is going to make a strong difference. We're talking to Cambridge about how we can bring in some of their training programs and start to disseminate these across the country. Um, we're building communities at the Cambridge curriculum schools, which are both private and um, state schools. And that there's lots of work to be done to try and simply do our best with education, because obviously that's our area of expertise and where we could probably do the most good. So that's where we are right now. But there have been tons of different areas. We, again, with the ministry's assistance, we have been selected to act as the blueprint for a carbon neutral campus. So we're in the process of covering our rooftops in solar panels. Mongolia is very sunny and very windy. It may get cold, but it has plenty of resources in those two areas. And so with, with wind um, turbines, with solar power, we hope to be able to take the, the school off grid. We are, have already a, a really successful waste management system for our food waste, which is going to improve soil quality, particularly in those marginal areas where you know, overgrazing is a big issue here. Um, particularly this is the only part of uh, the country where the population density is high. So, And there are still herders and particularly Kashmir goats around in this area. They need help. So if we can help turn our food waste into fertilizer, help support the, the soil, help the herders um, maintain their herds and their income, then again, it, it works well. And obviously recycling programs, not just the... Um, the little uh, briquettes of paper, but other broader recycling. And all of this has to go into 
the education program for the children to make sure they understand what we're doing and what the impact is. So at the moment, we're just starting a lot of the initiatives going. The idea is that if we're successful in tying this to education as well as environmental impact, we can then utilize that as a blueprint to be replicated right the way across the country, which um, again, I think would be a, a huge step forward. And uh, you know, I praise the Ministry of Education to the help because they've been absolutely receptive to all of these ideas. But I think it is going back to what I was saying about those donations and volunteering and assistance that we paved the way with two, three years ago. It's because we made that effort at the beginning that we're now viewed as the, the school that cares, the school that they can trust, the school that means it. And I'm very proud we've got to that place. We're not finished. There's lots to continue to do. But um, I'm really excited about the opportunities we have to just try and you know, shape the educational conversation and the environmental impact um, at a national level, which again, it's why do you leave the UK? Because opportunities like this don't tend to come to many headmasters back in uh, England. So I'm very, very grateful uh, for the enormously interesting opportunity and challenge that we're provided with here and what we can do. Um, it's very exciting. It does sound very exciting and, and some great great insights in what you're doing. And I thought that the teacher training side particularly, that sounds really, you can see, can't you, so clearly how that can help the country or to your point earlier, like the long-term prosperity, growth, you know, development of the country. If your state teachers are being helped by your teachers on, on their, their teaching of English to the local population and that's seen as a major strategy, then that's great. Um, Certainly hope so. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask, obviously, you, you mentioned the ministry, um, and obviously it sounds like this work has, has developed over the last few years. So for you as the leader of the school, again, how was that something where you had to sort of, and you've talked, touched on some of the things that helped, but how have you, did you on a personal level, like, did you have to repair a relationship there or just build it from the ground up? Was it there, but a bit like, again, you, they had this sort of, we don't know who you are at the school so much. Because I'm thinking, it sounds like, you know, you've come in and you've obviously played a role in it, a big role in, in this work. So how much does a leader have to do to sort of get to know the ministry, get to know the education chiefs, you know, that you say so that they, you, these things can take, take flight? Uh, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, it, it, it didn't exist before I arrived. Um, the, there was no functional relationship with the Ministry of Education, to be honest. Um, we, as, as we always do in these sort of schools, you build your networks and you utilize relationships. Um, everywhere I've worked across Asia, it's all about relationships. And I think that what we did is just simply try and bring ideas, bring projects to the relevant people. I have to say the current minister has been absolutely superb because we, we had a gear change. Um, when he was uh, appointed to this particular post. And he's very open to what we're trying to do and very open to the world um, and believes that's the best way he can facilitate the development of education in this country. Um, so that certainly helped. But yes, it, there's, there's been a lot of personal connection, a lot of time in meetings, a lot of discussion, and just that, that constant sort of repetition of, look, we just want to help. You know, what What do you plan to do? As I said, it's not for me to direct. It's absolutely not my role. 
Um, and nobody would accept it if I tried. Um, but what it is important to do is to say, look, so you've got this initiative. Well, I could assist you with this, this, and this. What would you like? Oh, we'd like that. Okay, let's do it. And then piecemeal, gently, these initiatives start to, um, you know, start to come together. Um, and then eventually we signed a pretty wide ranging MOU, which had training and the environmental work I've already talked about, um, development of communities, um, and, um, you know, some really quite far reaching future prospects about improving PISA, um, scores. And we, we signed that to be a critical partner, um, and, uh, supportive friend to the ministry. And that was a, a you know, a, a very proud moment. I mean, we really did take things forward. I was um, delighted with the, the way in which they've been open to what we could bring. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I was at a, a meeting of English teachers, uh, Mongolian English teachers, and um, I attended. I, I was the only head of the international schools in the room. I think everyone was invited, but I was the only one who came. Um, the... So one of the ladies stood up and was saying how she was appalled at the, the number of mistakes that she, she counted them 72 mistakes in an English paper. And I say it, it's impossible for a student to get a hundred percent on this paper because it's basically, it, it's riddled with errors. And I happened to be sitting around the minister and uh, I just uh, said, you know, give it to us. We'll, we'll proofread it. No problem. Um, you know, if we can help just, you know, sh shunt it my way. We'll make sure we've got the confidentiality um, systems just in exactly the same way we use with Cambridge, um, but we could help and just big thumbs up. And it's little things like that, which I think show that you're genuine. Um, there is no benefit to us to do that, but there's a lot of benefit to the children of Mongolia. So it's well worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and, and a final question on that then. So when you, how did you go about getting yourself in into the right meetings like is it a case of do you just pick up the phone and just talk, keep you know, get through to the right person or do you go to the british embassy and say look how do i get some time with the minister like that world i mean i suppose there's heads listening to this who's all thinking yeah, i'd like to do a bit more i think we should have more involvement but they just keep hitting a barrier or it's hard to find the time with the right people you know how do you how do you do that i think your location does matter because there are certain places where this is difficult if you're one of hundreds of international schools in certain cities, as we know, around the world. But I think this would be extremely hard. Um, we're not. We're one of four or five. Um, so it is a good deal easier. But main techniques, one, mind your parents. Um, they've, uh, they've always got links and connections, and we utilize that very much to try and get ourselves together with um, relevant officials. Um, the embassy was enormously supportive and remains enormously helpful um, in this respect. And obviously, the, the the real awareness of the importance of international education to the British economy, I don't think it's ever been higher. And I'm delighted that this is finally being given the credence it deserves uh, at a governmental level back in the UK. And consequently, I mean, it has been a strategic um, area for the ministry in Mongolia. Um, since I arrived here, there's never been anything other than full support for this to move forward. So they've certainly helped introduce us to the right people, connect people at the relevant ambassadorial functions, the usual stuff, and make sure that you attend all those events, get the business cards out there and start to make connections. And 
it's also, I think you've got to be pretty tenacious with this. The door won't open immediately. Um, if you are, if you're just looking at this from the point of view of going straight to the top, I don't think it'll work. I think what you have to do is some of those lower level things, um, things which are relatively achievable to make a difference quickly, but decisively. And then that will be recognized, particularly when you're not in an enormous community. This is quite a tight knit place. And that also speeds things up. How you would do this in cities of 10 million people, I haven't a clue. I've, I, I do like my off the beaten path stuff um, and I enjoy it. Um, but here it's about keeping going, keeping your, you know, your core mission close to your chest and making sure that uh, people understand you're really just trying to help. Um, of course, there's a benefit to the school. I mean, we've had tremendous word of mouth and positivity based on this. And my school role has gone up hugely, about 20% coming out of the pandemic. Um, is this part of it? Yes, it is. Is it why we do it? No, it's an indirect benefit. It's not the, the sole reason, but I'm very glad it helps. But I do think, as I said before, at the end of the day, what are we here to do? Hopefully, we're here to bring different people together, uh, to help them understand each other, help them to work together, help them to live in harmony and friendship. And if we can do that, both for children and adults in the community, then I think that's a, a job well worth doing. And so that's fundamentally what drives me in this. But does it have an indirect um, benefit to the school? Sure, of course it does. Um, and so I think it's a win-win. I think the last thing then to think we should talk about, because we sort of touched on it and it, it sounded, you know, very, like you said, transformative in the way the pupil, you do the pupils. And then since then, we've talked a bit more about some of the sort of bit more top level things. But in terms of the work that the pupils now do or, or want to do, you know, again, if, if, are there any ideas that are now underway because of them that they've come to you or, or their, you know, their heads of year or whatever and said, look, we want to do this or we could help in this way or we want to, you know, set up a, a market stall or, you know, whatever it may be. I'm just, you know, <laughs> top of the, my head. But, how, how have they taken that kind of enthusiasm that you sort of galvanize around them and then to, to take things forward? One of the more interesting projects the children have put forward is creating a multi-sensory garden, um, which is a beautiful idea. And of course, if you're in a country which is below zero for about six months of the year, sometimes more, um, the, you know, that's not going to last too long or going to be replanted and not be usable very much. So what we're looking at is um, a greenhouse uh, where we could put this under glass, but we can start to look at hydroponics. We can start to look at how uh, solar energy can feed this, how we can use perhaps some of our wastewater or grey water to um, provide uh, the support it needs. And again, looking at that environmental engineering, which is a really hot topic here, um, to support this. But fundamentally, the idea is that it, it supports um, our SEN students um, in the best way possible and just provides a, a really beautiful place to live. The houses are supporting and raising money for different elements that are involved in design work. And most of the initiative has come from the children. It was a meeting with the house captains where this popped up and the greenhouse has already arrived. So it's well underway. Um, so 
there, there are lots of things they want to do, I mean, um, particularly lots of fundraising opportunities and initiatives like that. But we've had children who've been on, you know, ridden nearly 150 kilometers and sponsored rides um, over one weekend and raised thousands for local charities. Um, we've had lots of projects where they're, one of the really interesting ones was uh, some of the children were, were keen on trying to look at ways in which um, some of the herders could commodify uh, the wilderness and whether ecotourism um, in particularly targeted areas could become a really quite, um, you know, big income generator, reduce their reliance on large herds and actually start to encourage people to learn about what's here. Because as I said, I mean, the I've not seen the snow leopard, but some of the things, even the boar and horses, which are running around in the mountains just behind this school, they're everywhere. Bears, there's some incredible wildlife here. And perceptions of it vary depending on who you're talking to. So the children are really keen on seeing if that actually this can be made into a method of supporting livelihoods for people in the rural areas, which I think is a fantastic idea. And we're developing this through global perspectives and geography and humanities are, are really pushing this forward, looking at examples in other parts of the world, seeing what can be done here and try to support those entrepreneurial initiatives with some of the older children um, are already pushing themselves, even 16, 17, 18. Um, what can they do to support communities outside the city? I think that's very exciting and I'm really impressed they could come up with such good stuff. Yeah, yeah, they do, they do sound great and, and really sort of, you know, sort of long-term thinking as well. Uh, you know, like you said, like real that sustainable new ideas, mm. new innovation, new um, income ideas, which is great. And I think the last thing then to ask about is, is your teaching staff and, and their role in this, because again, they sort of presumably have to help with this and facilitate it and it's, it's not to tied in. But I suspect they, from the way you've described the school and so forth, I suspect most of them or all of them took no convincing or don't see it as, as an imposition. But again, how, how have you managed to make sure it, it doesn't get in the way of the other parts of their job because again it's always there's always all these things to think about isn't it so how do you make that work the best of their workload and, and headspace i think it, it's something i actually interview one um i actively select teachers who have an interest in this area because what i'm basically looking at is if we can ensure staff are fulfilled and happy that they're enjoying their weekends they're out on those horses doing whatever they want to do and then they come in full of energy on a Monday and they want to bring that to the children. These are areas which people really do enjoy. So rather than it being a tension of, oh no, I've got to do this voluntary work. No, that's something they really love. The training, like I said, you know, this is just people coming into their classrooms and sharing ideas and working within the local community. People really do like this. So there hasn't been a sense of convincing, although I have slightly in engineered the team to be the, the people who are very receptive to this. But I think that, as I said, when it comes to the, the, sort of the core business of the school, what we're trying to do is bring this into our educational programs, into our lessons. Um, it's very much in keeping with our vision and mission. And through that, it actually enlivens what the children do every day, every lesson. Um, so it's not, there's no separation. There's no tension between two poles. This is just what we do. And so, yeah, it's, it's a balance of 
a lot of staff meetings talking about ideas. I mean, these are by no means all my ideas, far from it. Um, it's stuff which is being supported and coming out of my team all the time. Um, there are loads of things we haven't done yet. Um, I'm very keen on doing an art exhibition before too long where we have local artists exhibiting with our own students so the children can see what it's like to be a professional artist and what that experience is like in the same way we're supporting the artistic community of the city and that cultural side of things. Um, it's just something I think is well worth doing. It'll be a, a, a great event and I'm hopefully one or two paintings will be sold so one or two sculptures will get in the hands of you know willing customers and that'll do a good job for the uh, the kids trying to um, do their best with their career because it's you know, it's a difficult time, particularly recently where art hasn't been the top of the agenda for most people. Um, so all that sort of stuff, I think if you can integrate it into the school's program, it becomes just what we do. It's the culture of the place. And I think that creates a happy school, happy children, happy staff, good learning. It, you know, it's not rocket science. It, that's how it will make a difference in terms of your outcomes because people are happy to be here. Um, doesn't always work like that. Of course, I'm not naive. But if we can push towards that, where most people are involved in this uh, with a willingness to help, it just becomes what we do. And I think when you've changed the culture in that respect, then you've created something, which again, I said it before, but it's a phrase I use a lot. The school is a force for good. And that I think is a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it sounds great. And I suspect there are a lot of people listening to this, whether in leadership already or, or aspiring to it, who, who will sort of take a lot of that on board. Because I think the way you, you describe it and the way it, like, see, it's part of the school and it's it's quite clear, it sounds like you know, there's yourself, there's your, your staff, there's the pupils. It, it, it sort of coalesced and people want to do it. And I think that's what seems so key here is that there's so many ideas coming up. Because some of you put, you've told me that you're doing were not things I've sort of heard a lot of other people say before about, you know, community outreach stuff, not to suggest that they may not be doing it or maybe the setting just lends itself to different things. But again, you can see people are really thinking hard about this and, and it's not just, you know, a kind of a bake sale on, on a Friday. It's, it's real sort of engagement and long-term thinking and, and strategy, which I think is so interesting um, and, and shows what international schools could do and, and, and are doing a lot all around the world, which is something that mm. I have, when I have written about it, I always find so so interesting and, and sort of, it shows that it's a, it's a sector that, that I think, I mean, you all know more, you're, you've been doing it for years, but it strikes me that more than ever now, international schools see themselves suddenly, they're not these silos, they are these beacons and they have to connect, they have to be out in their communities. And, and it seems like that's a, it's on the, very high on the gender or, or rising up the gender all the time, you know, your, your testament to that. But again, I mean, maybe the final question, do, do, are you, do you pick up that trend? Do you think this has risen up in the sector more, more generally? Do you think you hear more people doing these kind of things? Yes, I do. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a reason for it because I think the, the move away from the sort of the traditional picture of the embassy school with purely expatriate children and you know, there, there used to be the case with places that, you know, locals weren't even allowed in. I mean, I think those days are gone and good. Um, they should be because that's a very peculiar way to do business. Um, I think that it's extremely important that we view ourselves as part of the communities we live in. We're not here boarding. We're not temporary. We, this is home. And I think when you change the frame that way, and start to view things in that um, perspective, 
it, it, it just alters the way your, your staff and your community, even your children respond to you. We are predominantly a school for Mongolian children, not purely, but we will always have more Mongolian kids than um, expatriate children. It's the nature of the community here. But as I've said many times, if I wanted to teach a lot of British kids, I'd go back home. Um, the, it, I, I think it's essential for schools such as mine to be a, a strong part of the local community and to have this high on their agenda in order to prevent that dislocation and that sense of privilege, effectively making the school an adjunct um, and irrelevant to the society in which we work. Um, if we do that, we, we, we simply lose our entire purpose. So I think you're absolutely right. I think this is very important. I think it's certainly uh, increasingly viewed as important around the world. And I believe as the proportion of uh, local children um, join international schools, and certainly everything we saw recently is suggesting this continues to grow ever further, then it only becomes more important. I don't see this becoming less of an issue in the future, far from it. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end because I think it gives everyone a sort of a clear, like, you know, this is why it matters. And if you're doing it, great. But there's always more you can do. We've had some, had some great ideas from yourself and, and, the, and the sort of context you're doing it in, which sounds sounds fantastic. And definitely one that we'd be keen to hear more on through Tez. So, you know, hopefully we'll hear whether on a future podcast again or, or on, on articles. But it's a fascinating area. That's what sounds like a brilliant school. So thank you so much for your time and insights. And, um, yeah, good luck with it all. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for the invitation to speak about it. I'm very grateful.